Beloved, I'm going to begin with a couple of quotes from two men, ex-Navy SEALs. Uh, the quotes are in the context of discipline, discipline at the physical level. Uh, certainly from a bodily exercise standpoint, I think these two men know a thing or two about that. But they're speaking in the context of even broader. Uh, the one area, though, that they're not thinking of, as far as I know, from either one of them, is how it would apply towards our relationship with the Lord. And I'm bringing these out because when they talk about discipline, even they talk about discipline in the context of suffering, it is very similar to what we have in our journey, in our spiritual disciplines, as we seek to be pleasing to the Lord, as we would seek to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Jocko Willink, in his book, Discipline Equals Freedom, a field manual, said this, quote, There's no easy way. There's only hard work, late nights, early mornings, practice, rehearsal, repetition, study, sweat, blood, toil, frustration, and discipline, end quote. David Goggins had these words. Everybody wants a quick fix, like six-minute abs. Now, you may get some results from this, but those results won't be permanent. The permanent results come from having to suffer. You have to make that a tattoo on your brain so that when the hard time comes, you won't forget it. And then on another occasion, Mr. Goggins said, the only way that you're ever going to get to the other side of this journey is by suffering. You have to suffer in order to grow. Some people get it, some people don't, end quote. Now, beloved, again, those words were spoken at a physical level. They ring true, I think, at the uh, physical level, but they are very common and very similar to what we have in our Christian walk. When we think of Christianity, we understand that biblical Christianity cannot be reduced down to a list of do's and don'ts. Having said that, however, there are do's and don'ts that God gives us in Scripture to govern our life, to govern our thinking, to govern our words, to govern our behavior. The ABCs of basic Christianity. And in the same way that there are ABCs of basic physical discipline, there are ABCs of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to live a victorious life, to walk and follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Please open your Bibles, beloved, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And that is precisely what the Apostle Paul does here as he is wrapping up this letter, this first letter to the church in Thessalonica, he gives the ABCs of basic Christianity in chapter 5, verses 16 through 22. And as we come to this, we are reminded of the wonder of preaching, which is a group of people listening to the voice of one man so that each one of us, this one man, and each man and woman here would ultimately hear the voice of God through the word of God even preached. Beloved, this is the word of God, 1 Thessalonians 5, beginning in verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Oh, beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. 
Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to this church, this fledgling church, this months-old church that is a model church, it's an example church. It's a church that is not just surviving in the hurricane of immorality swirling around the Greco-Roman world. They're not just surviving, they are thriving. And what Paul does here is he gives him commands from the Lord so that they would continue to not just survive, but that they would continue to thrive. Uh, Paul writes that to the Thessalonians. God writes this to you and to me. And what Paul does here with this beloved Thessalonian congregation is he encourages them, he nudges them, he incites them to excel yet more. And this is really flowing from what Paul has been doing since he got to the latter portion of this letter back in chapter 4, verses 1 through the beginning of verse 3, where he lays out the will of God for their lives and God's will for your life and God's will for my life. Chapter 4, verse 1, there Paul writes, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. And then here's the rub, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And so he's picking up this exhortation that began all the way back there at the beginning of chapter 4. And even when we see the commands that God gives to the Thessalonians, we know that the Thessalonians have already been commended by Paul for their behavior in these areas. But he doesn't want them to rest on their holy laurels. He wants them to excel still more, to grow and to thrive. And so what he does is as he encourages them, nudges them, incites them, he does it with a staccato of priceless principles, with practical, vital instruction. And I'm encapsulating these seven verses with four commands from Paul to the Thessalonians, four commands from the almighty creator, God of the universe, to you and to me individually and corporately. Uh, the commands that we see here in these verses, while they apply to every individual man and woman, every individual Christian, the verbs, the commands are all plural, so they're given to the church. So the point is, as we think of our beloved Santan Bible Church, as we have a, a blaze of holiness and a light of a gospel witness to the world, we understand that that fire and that light is made up from the flame of each individual coal, each individual member, each individual man and woman, young or old, educated or uneducated in our body. And the four commands from God to you and to me, beloved, are be joyful, be prayerful, be thankful, and be discerning. Uh, the first three are given one verse at a time in verses 16, 17, and 18. And then I'm wrapping together the last four verses, verses 19 through 22, because they're all, all, all about one thing, which is discernment. Be discerning. And beloved, the intent here for the original audience, the intent for you and for me 2,000 years later, is that we would respond to the word of God and that we would walk in the way of God. So, Let's look at this first command from God to you and me individually and corporately that we would continue to thrive, namely be joyful. Now, verse 16, by the way, it's a very easy verse to memorize. You can do it right here in the next 10 seconds. I would say that verse 16 is kind of unique. It is perhaps one of the easiest verses in all of Scripture to understand 
while simultaneously being one of the hardest verses to achieve. If there is some kind of ratio, this might win the prize of, again, being easiest to understand and being most difficult to achieve. But by God's grace and mercy, achieve it we can. The verse says, rejoice always. Say that in your mind, rejoice always. There you go. We just memorized this verse. Now, the Greek root word for rejoice here is the same root word as other very key essential words in the New Testament. It's the same root word as the root word for grace, the same root word as for to forgive someone or to give thanks or even the gifts of the Spirit all come from this same root where Paul commands rejoice always. And to be sure, we understand that in biblical Christianity, all truth, all true behavior, all true thinking, all true action, all true obedience to the word of God has to come from the inside out. Having said that, I would say that there, this is describing an experience of joy, but I think the accent, I think the weight of what God is commanding you and me has more to do with the expression of joy rather than the experience of joy. Having said that, we do understand that God detests hypocrisy. So this is not putting on a shiny people, shiny people happy face on the outside while we are filled with dead men bones on the inside. And beloved, also understand this and remember that joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So God is not commanding you and me here to do something that we have to suck out of our own thumb, that we have to stir up from our own resources. This kind of supernatural joy, this kind of supernaturally empowered expression of joy comes from the equipping of the Holy Spirit. The challenge is, as I indicated earlier, it can be very difficult to achieve this the way that we should. And the challenge is when our joy becomes a victim of our emotion rather than a servant of our will. You see, this kind of joy that God commands is the same joy that God promises. It's mental. It has to do with our thinking. It's visceral. It does have to do with our feeling, although that would very much take a backseat. And it is not just mental and visceral. It is also, perhaps first and foremost, volitional. It has to do with our will. And the challenge is what do we do? What do you do? What do I do when the shadows are so long they, they cast a dark emptiness across our path? The simple to understand command from God, the simple to understand answer from Paul is rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord. And we may say to ourselves, we may say to someone else, to a brother or sister, or we may just say in our head to ourselves, well, it's easy. I, I can rejoice when things go my way. That's the easy part. I can rejoice when the stars are aligned. We may at other times say, well, rejoice is easy for you to say, but you don't know my circumstances. And beloved brother or sister, what I would say is your circumstances, your circumstance are contained and addressed in the directive that God gives here. He says, rejoice always. This is all-encompassing. You see, this, this kind of joy is theological. It's not circumstantial. This is not describing a fleeting feeling of happiness. A joy has nothing to do with circumstance. It has everything to do with Christ. Even as the men sang so well the last song, it's all about the cross. It's all about Christ. He is the foundation for the joy that we have, the joy that we experience, the joy that we express. We understand 
when we think of situations, that not all situations, not all circumstances are good. But we do know that God causes all circumstances to work together for your good, for my good, for those of us who are called according to the purpose of God. So, beloved, when God promises this joy that he commands us to, he's not promising something related to chance or circumstance. He's promising a deep-down confidence that all is well. We can think of the shalom that Justin talked about, the the well-being. This is the inner well-being of a joy that God plants in our soul, at our conversion, which grows and blossoms as we walk in Christ. No matter the circumstance, no matter the difficulty, no matter the problem. It's a joy, a supernatural joy that finds the beams of light in a dark and dreary world, in a generally speaking, dark and dreary world where sin and confusion and immorality and wickedness abound, but also beams of light in your particular path, your particular journey. Even, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he is there with us, walking us, lead us all the way through it. And even in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, by God's grace and mercy, we can see the beams of light that are the promise of the ultimate, eternal, glorious light that await us in the end. This is the same kind of joy. And what's beautiful and blessing about this, this is a New Testament book. This is a new covenant uh, dimension and dynamic that Paul is writing to there in which we experience here. But it's very much the same. This is not new revelation. This is not a new type of situation like he talked about with, the fu- with one element of the future coming of Christ back in chapter 4. For example, Zechariah, God remembered. Zachary 2.10. Sorry, (laughs) Zechariah. God says through the prophet Zechariah, sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. Why? Why should at the time that God wrote to uh, Israel, their external circumstances weren't such that they should sing for joy. So why should they sing for joy? Sing for joy and be glad, for behold, I am coming and I will dwell in your midst. It is all about Christ. It is all about the cross on this side of his coming that we understand. Jesus himself, in Luke chapter 10, verse 20, said, Rejoice. Why, Lord? Rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Your names are recorded, as John tells us in the book of Revelation, in the Lamb's book of life. That, beloved brother and sister, is a reason for rejoicing. That's why we can rejoice always. Or Acts 5, verse 41, Luke, as he records the apostles, he records the apostles went on their way from the presence of the council, watch this, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And even as we continue on here with Paul, we understand that rejoicing in the midst of suffering certainly was part and parcel for the ministry and walk of the Apostle Paul and even for the Thessalonians themselves. When Paul and Silas were arrested, beaten, and thrown into prison in Philippi before they came to Thessalonica, despite the injustice, despite the darkness, pain, and even uncertainty of what awaited them, In Acts 16, verse 25, Luke tells us that Paul and Silas were rejoicing in the Lord around midnight despite their predicament because they made, beloved, a decision of the will to rejoice, independent 
of their imprisonment. They knew, they knew behind the sometimes frowning providence of God, for the child of God, there is always hidden the smile of God, even behind the sometimes providential frown of his. They understood that at times when, at the times when God's hand seems hidden, his rule is always absolute. Again, when his hand seems hidden, his rule is absolute. He is sovereign. He has foreordained whatsoever may come to pass. As you've heard me say before, there's not a renegade molecule in the entire universe. The Thessalonians themselves, I mentioned, all the way back, Paul opened up this letter, chapter 1, verse 6, commending these months-old believers for their joy even in the midst of suffering. Chapter 1, verse 6, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word, watch this, in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And then later when Paul writes his other letter to a Macedonian church, when he writes the letter to the church in Philippi, chapter 4, verse 4, Paul there gives a similar statement. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. I guess maybe Paul thought the Philippians had a little thicker skull, so he had to repeat it twice in one verse. But in any event, it's the same command, same directive. And beloved, he says rejoice always categorically, no qualification, no exception whatsoever. And the situation is, you don't always know, I don't always know exactly what God is doing and why he is doing it. But you and I in Christ, we always know two things, that God is good and God always does good. So keeping that in heart and mind is part of how by his empowering indwelling Holy Spirit, we can rejoice always. And believe me, I'm still very much a great work in process uh, towards that end. I don't rejoice always the way that I should, but God's not done with me yet, nor is he done with you. Joy comes into the heart, practically speaking, when the eye is on the sky. We're coming to this after these long, this long excursus on the end times, on the second coming of Christ. So there is an element where we keep our eye on the sky. And by doing that, by anticipating the future return of Christ, that produces this kind of joy. And equally necessary, this joy comes into our heart when we keep our hand on the plow. It is a both and. It is both an anticipation of what awaits us and a responsibility of what God commands us to do here and now. So when we are struggling more than normal in rejoicing through times of trouble, understand this, we won't. You will not rejoice more by praying less. You will not rejoice more by reading less. You will not rejoice more by serving less. In the same way, if somebody doesn't feel like getting in shape and having bodily discipline, well, the first step is get up and get going. Eat better and move more. So also the ABCs here is get up and move forward. Pray, read, study, serve the Lord. That will produce joy in the heart, in the child of God. So God commands you and I, sorry, God commands you and me to be joyful. The second command, he commands you and me to be prayerful. 
And in fact, these next two commands, be prayerful and be thankful, really answer the question and fill in, how can I be joyful? Well, the way I can become more joyful is by becoming more prayerful and more thankful. Robert Murray McShane said, what a man is on his knees, that he is and no more. In other words, the proving ground, the testing ground for our walk with the Lord can not, I think, be measured by anything or a metric much better than what does your prayer life look like? What does my prayer life look, look like? So here in these three first three commands, Paul exhorts them to rejoice sometimes, pray when it's convenient, be thankful in most circumstances. No, of course not. He says here, second command, pray without ceasing. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. All three of these commands are accompanied by universal, all-comprehensive, continual modifiers. The modifier, actually, in all three of them, stands emphatically before the verb in all three. Literally, the first one is always rejoice. Here, it's without ceasing, pray. He does this strange word order to drive home and intensify those universal, all-comprehensive modifiers. And we can ask the question, a practical question, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? Well, we understand that doesn't mean that every second of every day we are spent in, pra- in prayer. That what, so what does it mean? How can somebody pray without ceasing? And I think the way to understand this is this has more to do with the disposition of the heart rather than the articulation of the tongue. When he says pray without ceasing, pray repeatedly, pray continually. Let that be the regular, normal, continual pattern of your life. Also, when we think of the disposition of the heart, unceasing prayer is ultimately an unceasing dependence upon the Lord. Now, there is the, it, well, I was going to get all weird old Latin on you. There is the inherent uh, nature of the fact that we are always, of course, ultimately dependent upon the Lord. But what I mean by this is to realize that, to embrace that, to own the realization that we are always dependent upon the Lord. Even if God blesses us in great and mighty ways in certain things, in work, physical activity, school, music, etc., we depend upon the Lord. That is part of having an unceasing prayerful heart behind doing all that we do it's not passing and superficial it's deep and abiding it's not sporadic and partial it's continual and comprehensive faithful and regular beloved prayer is always the right response for every christian in every circumstance in every season of life without ceasing pray not now and excuse me not now and again not only when in trouble, but always. And this is part of what Paul commended them for and what Paul modeled for them. Back in chapter 1, verse 2, at the very opening of the letter, Paul said, we, he, Silas, and Timothy, give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Chapter 2, verse 13, we constantly thank God. And Paul had the same similar exhortation and expression of love to the church in Rome. In Romans 1, verse 9, there Paul wrote, God is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Because, beloved, the apostle Paul, he 
was a work in process just like I am a work in process, just like you are. But Paul understood that God loves prayer. And in fact, God commands us to give him no rest. In the same way that I talked about before, this is not some new dynamic. This was the case under the old covenant for the nation of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 62, verses 6 and 7, uh, God there through Isaiah gives the nation of Israel an illustration and then an application around prayer. The illustration has to do with a watchman uh, of a a guard. They would have the walled city and there would be watchmen that would be stationed there that would protect and cry out for the city. And this is what God said. He opens up in verse 6 of Isaiah 62 with the illustration. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night they will never keep silent. And then he moves from that to the application. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Did you get that? Give God no rest. This is the same kind of illustration that Jesus gave when he talked about the widow that went to an unrighteous judge. And she kept going back to him again and again until finally, in frustration, the unrighteous judge gave her the relief she was looking for. Christ's point there was not to liken God to an unrighteous judge. His point there was, if an unrighteous man will give a pesky widow what she asked for because she gives him no rest, how much more will your loving Abba Father in heaven give you what you ultimately and truly need when you need it, which is defined by him, not us, if you go to him repeatedly? Beloved, God loves prayer, and he tells you and me, give him no rest. In an early 20th century book, uh, Power Through Prayer, you'll read these words. And he talks about men, but in the context here of prayer, I think it's right to understand men and women under the umbrella of the men, mankind here. This is what the book says, quote, The church is looking for better methods. God is looking for better men. What the church needs today is not more or better machinery, not new organizations, not more and novel methods. Pause there. He wrote this over 100 years ago today. (laughs) How much worse is it now? Anyway, back on task. Not new organizations, not more and novel methods. What the church needs today are men whom the Holy Spirit can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. The Holy Spirit doesn't flow through methods, but through men. He doesn't come on machinery, but on men. He doesn't anoint plans, but men, men of prayer, end quote. Beloved, in the same way that your pulse is the primary indicator of your physical life, so also your prayer is the primary indicator of your spiritual life. What does your prayer life look like? The story was told that there were early African Christians that were very diligent in their prayer. And what they would do is they would go out into the thicket to have their own private place to pour their heart out to the Lord. And over time, they would blaze a trail, and so it would become a path and all the grass would be stomped down. But what would happen as a result was if one of the brothers or sisters became negligent in their prayer, grass would begin to grow in their path. And a faithful brother or sister would come alongside and say, brother, Grass is growing on your path. And the point is, don't let grass grow on your path to the prayer closet. Pray in every circumstance and in every place. Pray 
all the time and at all points of time. Pray regularly and constantly, publicly and privately. And we can wrap it up with this. Don't worry about anything, but pray about everything. That's praying without ceasing. So be joyful, be prayerful. The third command is be thankful. Be thankful. This is the duty and joy of thankfulness. Uh, Martin Luther gave a counterpoint. He was talking about the lack of a thankful heart. He was talking about ingratitude, and he said unthankfulness is theft. Uh, William Hendrickson, in his good commentary, said, when a person prays without giving thanks, he has clipped the wings of prayer so that it cannot rise. Or we can think that there's nothing more sure. Again, this is an individual. All of these are individual responsibility or responsibilities for the individual Christian, but in a corporate sense. And we understand that nothing is more sure to isolate hearts in a body than a spirit of complaint. And I say that to say there's nothing more sure to fuse hearts into oneness than a spirit of thanksgiving. As we, our individual coals with our individual flame, seeking to increase the burning flame and the, bright, the uh, brilliant light of witness from Santan Bible Church. That's why he says, verse 18, in everything, one more time, this universal, all-comprehensive modifier, in everything, give thanks. And the same thing that he has said before back in chapter 1 verse 2 we give thanks to God always for all of you 213 for this reason we also constantly thank God he will write the same type of thing to the church in Ephesus Ephesians 520 always giving thanks for all things again universal all comprehensive because the apostle Paul knows that the seeds of sin are everywhere looking to be sown in the heart and like weeds in a garden, it's amazing how fast they take over. Beloved, the greatest weed killer, the greatest sin killer is a thanksgiving-filled heart. If we truly are thankful for, to the Lord, that will mortify the deeds of flesh. That will put to death the deeds of the flesh in our heart, in our body, in our mind, in our words. And notice here what Paul doesn't say and what he does say. He doesn't say, for everything give thanks. He says, in everything give thanks. He's not commanding God to thank him for your cancer. He's not commanding God to, I'm excuse me, he's not, pardon. He's not commanding you to thank God for your cancer. He's not commanding you to thank God for the evil things that happen in the world. But he is commanding you and me to thank God in all of these. To thank God in the good. That's the easy part. To thank God in the bad and to thank God in the ugly, in all-encompassing manner. So, beloved, in a similar way to prayers and joy, thanksgiving is always the right response for every Christian in every circumstance and in every season of life. And the reason why, how can we do that? How can we be thankful all the time? Because what is it we are ultimately thankful for? Just again, hearkening back to that song at the end. What we are thankful for in Christ, our forgiveness of sin, our adoption into the beloved, our redemption from the bondage of the slavery of sin, uh, the promise of presence with God and Jesus forever and ever in heaven. What we are thankful for is absolutely certain and unshakable. You see, when we 
cast our eyes and fix our eyes on Christ and the cross rather than the circumstance, that's how we can rejoice. That's how we can be thankful in all circumstances. And then finally, at the end of verse 18, and this really wraps up all three of the commands, he says, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. These three commands that we just went through are the spring from which all outward obedience flows, from the inside out, a joyful heart, a prayerful heart, a thankful heart. And that takes us to the fourth command, which I'm wrapping up the final four verses, namely, be discerning. Be discerning. Uh, Ligon Duncan said this, quote, he said, in our day and age, in our generation, I want to suggest this, second only to our need for holiness is our need for discernment. And beloved, all of these final four verses are about one thing, discernment, how to keep our head while the world around us is losing theirs. He begins, so it's about discernment, so it's centered around discernment and tied in, every one of these tied into, in one way or another, the word of God, which is the sword of the spirit, which divides truth and error. And he begins by saying, verse 19, do not quench the spirit. Uh, quench, that the Greek word can mean to quench a fire or to extinguish a light. And this command, this negative command, don't quench the spirit, is very similar. It's a little different, obviously a different word, but it's very, very similar to what Paul will later write to the Ephesians. In Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. And there's an element of the grieving that is kind of unique. We can think of a, an unsaved person, a man or a woman who are still dead in their trespasses and sin. An unsaved person can resist the Holy Spirit but only a child of God can grieve the Holy Spirit. For grief to be there, there needs to be an intimate relationship. And even there, that's bringing out the fact that it's a command for us to not grieve our loving Father in heaven. So don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. Okay, then what are we to do? We are to be filled with the Spirit, as Paul will also later write the Ephesians. And of course, when God commands you and me through the pen of the Apostle Paul to continually be filled with the Spirit, that does not mean that we have more of the Spirit. It means he has more of us. It means we are controlled by him more. We are governed by him more. We are guided by him more. And beloved, the Spirit of God does the work of God in the people of God with the word of God and according to the word of God. The spirit of God doesn't operate outside of the word of God. That's why even here, when he says, do not quench the spirit, he's talking it back and drawing it back even to the revelation that's been given us in scripture. And by the way, when we, before we leave the topic of quenching the spirit, we can think of some of the different topics that Paul has addressed since he began his exhortation part of the letter back in chapter 4. He talked about uh, sexual purity and sexual immorality on the sin side. He talked about laziness and a work ethic. And then he talked about panic and hysteria and speculation regarding the second coming of Christ. And all of these sins, sexual immorality, laziness, panic and hysteria, all of these will quench the Spirit of God. And beloved, none of us have yet attained the goal. There are times when I quench the Spirit. There are times when you quench the Spirit. And understand this, when 
We quench the Spirit of God. We lose the joy of God. That's how these are tied together. So while these are a list of different commands, they're not separate. They're all intertwined. Jay Adams, in his book, The Christian Counselor's Manual, said this, in the context of how the Spirit works with the Word of God, how the Spirit of God works with the Word of God. Quote, The work of the Spirit isn't mystical. The Holy Spirit plainly told us how he works. He works through Scripture. The Bible is his book. Godliness doesn't come by osmosis. There's no easy path to godliness. It requires the prayerful study and obedient practice of the Word of God. That's like a Christian sanctifying version of some of the quotes I read from Jocko Willink and David Goggins before. And beloved, he continues on, Paul does here in chapter 5, in verse 20, do not despise prophetic utterances. So don't quench the spirit and do not despise, literally, do not despise prophecies. Uh, the word here is used in the New Testament. It's sometimes used of oral prophecy, but more often it's used of the written word of God. And from our context where we're at now, that is the only application we have for us. What he's saying here is, don't treat the foretelling of the word of God with disrespect. Don't disregard it. Don't dishonor it. Don't despise it. And in fact, this would help us understand when we remember that when Paul commended the Thessalonians themselves. So back in chapter 1, Paul launched into a necessary defense of he uh, of his, Silas and Timothy's ministry. Then in chapter 2 at the beginning, he basically pointed to himself and Silas and Timothy as shepherds. And then he talked about the kind of sanctified sheep the Thessalonians were. And in chapter 2, verse 13, there Paul wrote to the church, we constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, end quote. And remember, at that time, these brand new Thessalonian believers barely, if any, had any access to the written word of God. The only word of God they had there was the oral preaching of the word. So that kind of gives a perspective here on what he's talking about. Don't despise when the word of God is brought to bear preaching or in counseling or in fellowship or in discipleship at any level. Treat it with the respect it deserves. And this points to the supremacy of the word of God, and it points to the sufficiency of the word of God as well. By way of illustration, <clears throat> we can pull one from the new and one from the old. You remember in Jude? Uh, Jude told his audience, contend earnestly for what? Contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we can ask the question, well, <clears throat> how are we going to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints unless we know the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, this is from the new, but it is also the same dynamic in the old. You can turn there if you want. You can turn to Deuteronomy 18, or you can let me read it to you. And I'm going to pull something from Deuteronomy 18 and then back to chapter 13. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 18, verses 20 through 22, this is what God says to the nation of Israel through Moses. The prophet who shall speak a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he shall speak in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. And you may say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? 
verse 22. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you shall not be afraid of him. So what he's saying there is you will know a false prophet because if he says such and such event will come to pass and it doesn't, then you know he's a false prophet. And the penalty then, not now, was he shall die. But five chapters earlier, he gave an even stricter criterion. And in chapter 13, in the verse 3 verses, this is what God said there. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes true concerning which he spoke to you, saying, let us go after other gods whom you've not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the word of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So what he's saying there is if a prophet or a dreamer of dream comes and prophesies such and such an event and it does come true, it's a sign and a wonder, but he's telling you to follow after other gods, he's telling you to do something in contradiction to the word of God, then you know he's a false prophet. And then even at the end, it may have brought to your memory, remember the greatest commandment as divined by Jesus? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. At the end of verse 3, you saw that come out right there. God is testing you to find out if you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So even when Christ gave that greatest commandment kind of summary right there, even that also points back to the word of God, points back to the need for every Christian man and woman. 50-year-old, 50 years a new believer, 50 being saved for 50-year Christian, or a brand-new Christian. Brother and sister, we all have the same command. We continue on back as we wrap up the last two verses in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 21. But examine everything carefully. Examine to determine its genuineness. Prove it through testing. Uh, the word examine was used to translate in Proverbs 17 the refining pot of silver. Uh, the word examine here is used, the refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold there. The point is it refines, it brings out the, what is precious and burns up the dross. It's the same word that John used when he wrote in 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, examine the spirits to see whether they are from God. Paul, in verse 21, finishes out, hold fast to that which is good. Hold fast to that which is genuine, to not counterfeit. Hold fast. Uh, hold fast, this was a technical nautical term that would describe a ship that would hold fast its course. In fact, the same word translated hold fast is used by Luke in Acts 27:40 when Paul and his crewmates were heading for the beach. They were holding fast on their course towards the beach. What he, he is saying here to you and me, God is saying, keep in mind, continue believing, hold fast, hold strong. Don't veer off course to that which is good as defined by the revealed word of God in Scripture. Jesus brought out the same dynamic. You remember when he gave the parable of the soils. There were the different soils. There was the one good soil. And Jesus said, the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart 
and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. The author of Hebrews would exhort his audience, Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. And then finally, beloved, our last verse, verse 22, again, under the umbrella of this biblical call to discernment, abstain from every form of evil. And we've seen this word abstain from back when he opened up his exhortation, chapter 4, verse 3, he said abstain from sexual immorality. So this is not moderation. This is complete, total abstention. This is cutting it out, total abstinence, no room for it whatsoever. And this also is in the new and it's also in the old. God told Israel through Moses, Deuteronomy 23, 9, when you go out as an army against your enemies, then you shall keep yourself from every evil thing. Now, the nation of Israel was going out to fight a physical war. And what God was telling them there was that while you go out to fight the physical war, you need to be fighting the more important internal war of holiness. If you keep yourself from every evil thing, as God had instructed them in his word, then God will bless your physical efforts. We don't have a physical war that we fight, but we do fight the same uh, holy war, the same spiritual war. It's the same dynamic. And beloved, it's given to every believer, every Christian, no matter how old or how mature you may be. And we can't pass on the truth. We can't pass on the truth to other brothers and sisters. Parents, we can't pass on the truth to our children if we don't protect the truth. We can't guide if we don't guard. And God gives us to all of us. And this is needed in a world where values and standards are constantly shifting, if not utterly obliterated, we are reminded that our standard, the gift, God's gift to you and me of his word is fixed and constant. Spurgeon said, it's a good thing to carry your testament in your pocket. It's far better to carry the message in your heart. And I'm going to wrap up with a short, very pointed application. This is a kind of a unique way to wrap up a message, but I was thinking about this in this whole dynamic, and it ties together growing in the grace of the Lord and prayer. I'll ask a question. Don't raise your hand, and I'll try not to even look at eyes, but do you scroll on your phone in the middle of the night? If you wake up, do you scroll on your phone, and does that keep you up? Is your phone the first thing you reach for when you wake up in the morning to check the text, to check the emails, to scroll through your feed? Beloved, let me give you a strong encouragement. Don't scroll, pray. Put your phone down when you go to bed and leave it there. Pray when you're seeking to fall asleep. Pray to the Lord. If you wake up in the middle of the night, pray the Lord. Thank him, praise him. Thank him for your salvation. Pray for your children. Pray for your church. Pray for your holiness. When you wake up in the morning, don't reach for your phone. Go through your prayer list. Don't scroll, pray. Beloved, if you do that, that will grow you being a prayerful Christian. That will make you a more joyful Christian. You'll be a more thankful Christian, and we will all be a more discerning body. Again, I don't know if that's a very good way to end the message, but that's how I'm doing it today. (laughs) Please join me now as we go together in prayer. 
Lord, we praise you and thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for the timeless truth. As we've said, as we've gone through Thessalonians, we know that Paul wrote this some 2,000 years ago, but he could have written it this morning to me, to all of us. Lord, help us to excel yet more in all these areas. Let us be more joyful, more prayerful, thankful. Help us to always go to your word in all that we do. And we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in all this. It's for your glory and for your honor. It is all about you, Lord Jesus, what you've done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.